hear God's word this morning. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw, she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's Holy and errant word, may he bless our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we saw last Sunday, as we began to look at the first section of Genesis 21, that there was much joyful laughter going on, right? We just read that, because of the birth of the promised son, Isaac. Now, to put it as succinctly as I know how to do, <laughs> which is tough, the joyful laughter, listen, this is important, was a response to the fact that the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, we're talking some 30 years ago. What did God promise Abraham? God promised to make him into a great nation. So he promised him what? A people. And then he promised him not only a people, but a land, the promised land, because you need a land to live in if you're going to have people. So he promised him the promised people and the promised land. And with the birth of Isaac, that promise was kept alive. The hope was living. 
We saw last week, just as a quick reminder, that God waited until Sarah was completely past child-rearing age. Not a little bit past, but absolutely completely dried up, not physically, humanly impossible to have a son, so that he would show Abraham and the world that it was by his power and his power alone that the promise was kept. And we saw last week, three times in the first two verses or so, it emphasizes he kept his promise. He did what he said. He kept his promise. We've seen this throughout our study of Genesis, and particularly uh, last week we saw, and this is important to understand, on one layer, Isaac was a type of Christ. The son born who would be born to save his people from their sins. And remember, the promise was never really about Canaan, an earthly, earthly promised land. The New Testament tells us Abraham looked for what? The city that is to come. So Canaan represented something else. Not an earthly plot, but the new heavens, the new earth, that were awaiting all who put their faith and their trust in the promised one. And we remember this is traced all the way back to Genesis 3.15. For those of you who weren't with us, when God is meeting out the, the curses... Um, to the serpent, to the woman and the man, you remember, from the garden when the, uh, man sinned. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and, and the woman's offspring. And her offspring, you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. And that was the promise of a son. And we saw, as we, we talked about Abel, remember there was Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel? You remember um, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, Cain's wasn't, so Cain, out of jealousy and anger and envy, did what? He killed Abel. And so the reason I'm telling you this story, it'll come in, in, in a couple minute, moments as well, it tells us in the text, God gave them another son named Seth, but notice something, to replace Abel. The promise lives. So when we get to Isaac, we really get a clear picture of the Christ because he was born miraculously. And how was Jesus born? Of a virgin, miraculously. And everything, his resurrection, the, the miraculous son. So you with me? You tracking so far? Important stuff. All right. So what we have to see here is, and this, we're going to see this more and more in our study this morning, God's people, that is those who receive Christ as a gift of God's grace through faith, rightly rejoice with all believers who ever lived at the fulfillment of the promise of a son and the sure hope of the heavenly city to come. Amen. That was one of the big messages from last week. So this is why it's important for us to follow up here this morning with this. That is to say, listen, this is really neat. We have supernatural peace. We have supernatural joy. And we have intimacy, personal intimacy, with the God of all creation. And so much of our, we should be laughing with joy. Our Christian lives should be filled with joy. We shouldn't be moping around, complaining all the time. Oh, we're the persecuted. We should have great joy. Because our relationship with God has been restored. So very much like Sarah and Abraham and all those who welcome the birth of the son in a miraculous way, we laugh with joy at the faithfulness and the goodness of our God, who always does what he says he's going to do. 
But as we began to see last time, this is where we pick it up. There was another kind of laughter that was heard in the, in the tent city in those days. It was the laughter we just read about, the laughing of mock, mocking and of scorn. And I want you to understand something. It certainly dampened the mood of the camp. Kind of ruined the party in a sense for Sarah, didn't it? It tinged the celebration with sadness. And we saw in the text it was because Ishmael, the son who was born in the ordinary way of the flesh, laughed at Isaac and mocked him. And for sure it was out of envy. Sounds similar, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds familiar. Cain and Abel. We're going to see Jacob and Esau. This is a pattern. And Paul tells us what this laughter was all about in Galatians 4.29, in case you think maybe I'm stretching it. We, I got this from Paul. And it's not cheating. I read one commentator, I don't have to cheat and go to the New Testament. No, it's not cheating. It's if I, I want to know the answer, don't you? So Galatians 4.29, Paul says this. The son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. So we're talking persecution. And then Paul says about his day, it is the same now. Now the first half of this sermon is going to cover that verse. But for now, I, I need to say this. I want to tee up my sermon. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not a golfer, but, you know, you put it on the tee and you get it all, all set before you hit it and all that stuff. Most boring game in the world. But no, if you like it, that's fine. But in order to tee up the sermon, I'm going to make this very basic and general observation. This is important. On this side of glory, that means on this earth, before Jesus comes again and ushers in the new kingdom, the believer's experience, listen, this is important for you to know, will never be unmitigated joyful laughter but it'll always be mixed with sorrow pleasure will always be mixed with pain peace will always be in the midst of persecution and trials that's a fact why is this the case and really i'll put it simply to you i'll summarize the whole thing because we ain't home yet we ain't home yet this isn't our place, ultimately. This is not where we land. It's where we have to go through, but it's not our final resting place. We're on our way to the celestial city that is to come. We haven't arrived at our destination. While we travel there, now here's the important thing. While we travel there, we share this world with those who don't laugh with the sun, but those who laugh at the sun. And we're going to see the whole second half of this message is how do we respond to mockers? But I digress. I mean, I go ahead, get ahead of myself, I should say. I quoted earlier um, in our prayer time, John 16, 33. In this world, it's important, this verse. Jesus says, you will have trouble. And why it's important is he doesn't say you might have trouble. There's a good chance you could come into some difficulties he says, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now here's an interesting principle. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now what does that mean? 
It means knowing the fact ahead of time that it's not going to be easy, that we will be persecuted, that it's going to, we're going to have a tough go of it. It will help us when that time comes to not be surprised by it, but to stand firm in the faith and to not give up when we encounter trouble and persecution. And sometimes, even from those we least expect, religious people. The Bible warns us that this indeed will come to pass and it's going to be our lot in life. So in Pilgrim's Progress, I told you I was going to have a quote from that. Uh, this is such a great illustration, though, that it literally brought me to tears. So Christian begins to set out on his journey from this world to the world that is to come. This is at the very beginning of his journey. He still has his backpack on, which represents the burden of his sins, but he's on his way. And as he starts on his way, two fellas from his old city, the city of destruction, think Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, they come out to meet him. And one is called obstinate, and obstinate just mocks and does the whole persecution thing. But pliable listens to what Christian says about there is a land where God will wipe away all your tears, there'll be no more sorrow, and pliable goes, I mean to go with this good fellow. <laughs> and so obstinate says, you're all nuts, you're a bunch of fanatics, I'm going back. So that's where we are at this juncture in this illustration. And as they, they just literally start out, they go into, they fall into this pit called the Slough of Despond. And as they're in this pit, they're struggling. They can't see one another. It's dark. They're all muddy and dirty. And um, Pliable calls over to Christian. And when they're in the midst of the trial, this is what uh, happens. I'm reading from the book. At that, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, that is to Christian, is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on the side of the slough which was next to his own house. So away he went. And listen, this is the sad part. And Christian saw him no more. That's sad. It's heartbreaking. How many people have been walking with Jesus for a little while now that started out and I see them no more. Jesus talks about that too in the New Testament. In contrast to this, we saw the Christian struggle to get out, out near the end that's the furthest away from his house. And a man called Help comes and pulls him out of the slough, puts him right back on the straight and narrow and says, keep going. Back to the road that leads to life. But here's the thing. I know this is a long introduction, don't get too nervous. But here's the thing. That was only the first trial of many that Pilgrim would have to face before he gets to the celestial city. He had many trials. The whole book is about the many trials, obstacles, persecutions, and sufferings that he would face on his way to the promised land, along with the joys that are mixed in between. So we're going to sing later at the end of this message, and we've sung it many times before, and 
hopefully this line will mean more to you after today. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Who was the man called help? The Holy Spirit. Or else Christian was just as lost. This is what we're going to see this morning. Those who are born of the Spirit will bless those who persecute them, displaying their family resemblance. I must say that again. It's important. Those who are born of the Spirit will bless those who persecute them, displaying their family resemblance. Two points. Those born of the Spirit will be persecuted by those born of the flesh. Only of the flesh, I should say. And the second point, those born of the Spirit will display their likeness to the Father by repaying good for evil. Two things way back in Genesis that we learn that are foundational gospel truths that are emphasized again and again in the New Testament. Let's take a couple moments for the first one. Those born of the Spirit will be persecuted by those born only of the flesh. Now, we just read the text from Genesis 21. And if you remember, uh, to save time, I won't reread it. But Sarah saw that the son born to the Egyptian woman, Hagar, Ishmael in other words, was mocking the son of the promise, her son Isaac. And her comments, I will quote this, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And notice in the text, this distressed Abraham. Now it tells us right in the text, because it was his son. So you got to remember, Isaac, I mean, Ishmael is probably about 13, 14, maybe even 15 now. So you have to understand, this is still his son, and he has great affection for his son. And he must also feel like he's responsible because he didn't wait for God's promise, but went ahead and tried things in his own power, in his own way. And he felt bad that the boy had to suffer for it to a degree, right? No doubt about it. So God comes to him, and God comforts him. And God says, don't be distressed about the boy, verse 12, and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, and here's the reason why. Very important point. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He's the promised son. He's going to be the one through who the Jews will come, my promised people. And then ultimately, people from all tribe, tongues, and nations that believe in Messiah Jesus. Right? But then he says this, I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. And that we're going to deal with that at the very end of the message here. So I, I spoke about Galatians 4 already. Hang with me, this is important. And Paul says this passage can be taken figuratively, as a figure. And I'm going to quote one more time from Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 28 to 31. Listen carefully. Now you, brothers, he's speaking to those who have received Messiah Jesus as Savior and Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. He says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Notice now Isaac is not a type of Christ, but Isaac is a type of what? The born-again believer, the true believer. He's a type of Christian. I want you to see that. So you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit let me stop 
born in the ordinary way. There was no miracle involved. Does anybody remember John chapter 3? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And then he says to Nicodemus, what? Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Hallelujah. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And it's interesting, Paul refers to this passage. So way back when we see the children of the flesh persecuting the children of the spirit. It's in Genesis. Can't get back any earlier. And when Paul says this, it's the same now. He is responding to a situation that was going on in Galatia, I guess 2,000 years ago. And I have to summarize this. Believe me, we're, stay with me because the payoff is going to be big. Right, hang with me. The payoff's going to be big. Paul had preached the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah of both Jew and Gentile, and whoever repents and believes in him is fully justified before God, 100% righteous in God's sight, a complete co-heir with Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing. And his point is, once you are saved, once you are justified, of course the fruits of the Spirit will come. You have to, we are created in Christ Jesus, as he says in Ephesians 2, to do good works, which God prepared in advance. But it's not backwards, right? So there are other teachers who came afterwards who happened to be Jewish, and they were preaching a legalistic gospel, which is no gospel at all. Because they were saying, yes, yes, it's good that you believe in Jesus, because they didn't want to get totally stoned um, but you also need to be circumcised so now they're talking to gentiles you need to be circumcised and you need to obey the law of moses in order to be fully accepted by god as one of his children so basically they were saying you need to become a jew to be saved and what paul was saying is no if you're jewish you need to become a christian to be saved like everybody else it's to the jew first and then it's to the Gentile. And so the issue here was, you had these teachers, they weren't content with just, uh, what do we call today, tolerance, you know, just living together, but they were harassing the Galatians. They were, they were persecuting them. They, they were continually in their faces trying to get them to turn away from the gospel. And so that's why Paul says, listen, don't feel like you're a second-class citizen because you're not Jewish, or because you're not no longer following the law to the letter, right? He's saying that was the true, go all the way back to Genesis, the law, the first five books of Moses. We already see the child born of the flesh only, persecuted. So you're, in other words, you're in good, good stead. It's when Jesus said, uh, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted, because that's how they treated who? The prophets who went before you. So that's what was going on. You had a works-oriented religion trying to replace the grace-oriented religion, which is from God, as we saw already in Genesis. 
So we're going to fast forward now 2,000 more years to our day today. And here's what we have to see, and you'll see why I'm mentioning this. You'll be like, wow, why is pastor going there? Hang with me. It's not just unbelieving Jews who refuse to submit to God's righteousness in Christ and seek to establish their own, right? In our day. In our day, there are many so-called Christian denominations that say it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus the sacraments. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus following our tradition exactly as we give it to you. And I know in my my own life and most likely in, in many of your lives as well, when I first came to know Jesus, I was resented most of all by the religious people. Who thought, because listen, I heard somebody say it this way, and I thought it was so good this week. He says, imagine, they've been working their whole lives trying to attain righteousness. And then this, this, this total sinner bum, who was such a loser, all of a sudden says, I'm on top. All I had to do is believe in Jesus, and I'm on top of the mountain, and I didn't have to push it all. That literally was my mom's, one of my mom's first <laughs> objections to me. You mean to tell me somebody can work their whole life and not get there to heaven? And one person at the last minute before they died, Jesus, forgive me? And I said, well, thief on the cross, work for him. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, don't wait to the 11th hour. If you've heard the gospel, that was his, his first meeting with Jesus. So, But yes, that is what I'm telling you. It's not by works. So it's not a Jew-Gentile thing. And here's the important thing. It never was. Because some Jews, like Isaac and all the promise, the remnant, trusted in God's grace, believed in the covenant of grace that God promised Abraham. And unfortunately, they were a minority. That's true. Okay, so why did I get into all that? Well, my second and last point, you're going to see the payoff, and I think it's so important. I don't usually speak to current events in the sense that they become a large part of my sermon. But this one got me so stirred that I had to do it. So you're here for a very rare historical moment. <laughs> Second point. Those born of the Spirit will display their likeness to the Father by repaying good for evil. Now, Ishmael was cast out. We saw that, right? And we saw that because he would not be the inheritor of the promise. And because he persecuted the son of the promise. How does God then treat Ishmael and Hagar? Super important to see this. How do you treat them? How dare you? And lamb blast them and say, I'm going to let you die in the desert? No. Kindness. Gentleness. Love. He did good to them. And he said, you know what, I'm, and, and as he promised earlier, by the way, I'm going to make you into a nation too, don't worry. I'll make him into a nation too. I'm going to take care of you. So in other words, we see this early on, God repaying evil with good. He's kind, he's good, even to the wicked. Even to those who don't deserve it. Now, fast forward, New Testament. This passage came even more alive to me um, when I was looking at it through gen the eyes of Genesis 21. Matthew 5, 43, beginning. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But here, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's a verse that has been misused constantly. Some people will use that as a, um, a, a witnessing tool. The Bible says we need to be perfect. Well, that is true in other texts, but that's not the perfection that Jesus is talking about. What's the perfection he's talking about? Love. Perfection is loving even those who want you dead. Romans 12, 14, one verse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, why is this so important and why did I say this is going to be a, um, something rare that I do? Well, a little over a week ago, a young man named John Ernest walked into a synagogue in California and he opened fire. He killed one and he injured at least three others. And unfortunately, this isn't the first time such a horrendous thing has occurred, even in our country. What makes this latest incident of note is that this, the 19-year-old involved came from an evangelical church. He came from a Presbyterian church. He came from Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I read comments online that sent me through the roof. Anger is not my go-to emotion, but it was that day. Some were saying, oh, we need to ex soul, have, do soul searching and uh, examine basically our theology and our teaching. And then I read the comments to this, and of course the non-believers were blaming the Bible. This is why it happens, because people listen to what God says, and they say that he said it, and they're going to do it. Well, I also remember in the 90s, when there was a professing Christian, just so happened he was also from the OPC, that bombed an abortion clinic. And I remember how sad that was. But here's the issue, my brothers and sisters. Hang with me. The problem is obviously not Reformed theology. The problem is not the Bible's teaching. Why do I say that? Because the Bible clearly, in no uncertain terms, flat out contra contradicts such hatred, such violence, and murder. Now here's the problem. You could be born and raised in the perfect church and still sin against God and have a twisted mind, a twisted heart, and go against everything that you were born and raised and taught. You want an example? His name is Judas. He had got, Jesus had 12, and one of them had the same teaching as the rest of them, and what did he do? Betrayed the Son of God, Son of Man, with a kiss. Doesn't mean we are, I'm not saying not to examine ourselves, but what I'm saying is this, anti-Semitism is not a natural result of the gospel's teaching. Because guess what? Tor, uh, was it Tori, Cory Tembu? Is that you say your name? Guess what she was? Calvinist. And guess what she did? She gave her life to rescue 
Jews who were being persecuted. Ask the first, very first Christian church, guess what it was? Jewish. All Jewish. Not one Gentile. Ask Messiah Jesus of the line of David. Ask the Apostle Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And you know, what came to my mind, and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, can you remind me of things when I'm in the pulpit the same way you remind me of stuff when I'm in the shower? <laughs> but it did, it, come, it came to my mind. You ever see First Blood with Rambo? Yes. Well, somebody asked, somebody asked Rambo, they say, that the policeman who persecuted him, by the way, said, why do you hate this country so much? And of course, Rambo goes, hate this country. I'd die for it. And he goes, well, then what is it that you want? He goes, I want this country that I love so much to love me back. Now, it's not an exact analogy, but if you remember Romans chapter 10, what does Paul say? Hate my people? If it were up to me and it was possible, I would be condemned in their place that they would know Jesus. I'd lay down my life and be punished in their place. Because here's the thing, this is what that kid wrote. He basically said Jews killed, the Jews killed Jesus. And that was his excuse why he could do such horrendous, unspeakable things. But the Bible clearly says the Jews and the Gentiles together did it. Meaning, by the way, we all did it. Peter preached these words to his fellow Jews in Acts 2, 23, when speaking of the death of Jesus. He said to the Jews of his day, You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Two things. Who were the wicked men that helped him? The Romans. My people. Sobering. Very sobering. The gospel rules out any idea of anti-Semitism or anti-Romanism for that matter. The gospel says all have sinned. All are in need of the righteousness that only comes in Christ alone and that is received by faith alone. So what's our response to anybody? It's not violence. It's not guns. It's not to blame a whole group of people. It's to preach the gospel of peace. That's the difference. Almost done. You remember in the garden they went to arrest Jesus? What did Peter do? Took out a sword. And he was so bad at it, he only cut the ear off. <laughs> Just say it. But what did Jesus say? Put that thing away. Paraphrase, you can hurt somebody. And he grabbed the ear miraculously put it back on that's not my way Peter and it's not ever to be your way if you're a true child of promise like Isaac a child of the free woman Sarah as it were then here's the big takeaway you will be like your father in heaven who does good even to his enemies even to those who are doing you harm. 
And here's the thing, you will leave justice in that sense to him. You will entrust yourself like Jesus did to him who judges, judges justly. And you will conquer via the cross. How did Jesus win his enemies? Laid down his life for them. He didn't take up arms against them. So brothers and sisters, we are called as children of the free woman to return good when we get evil. And that doesn't matter what group of people they come from. Because all of us, all groups of people, are in the same position of in the need of the salvation that only Jesus can bring. And every single one of our backgrounds has things we're not proud of. Because we all need Jesus. Amen? Let's not only pray, but let's pray for that synagogue, for those families, and many other um, such incidents that have happened in even recent times. Let's pray. Father, it's unimaginable when we think of the loss, whether it's one life or 300 lives in Easter when churches were shot up. Father, we pray for mercy for the families that lost loved ones. And Father, we pray for our enemies. We pray for the shooter because he has proven himself not to be a son of the Father. But we pray for him. We pray for his salvation. We pray for his eyes to be open. We pray, Father, for your peace and your comfort to be upon that whole synagogue congregation. And we pray for your people to humbly come, not from a high horse, but from under the cross, to mourn with them and to be a support. And Father, we pray for our own selves that we would show ourselves to be children of the Father and not lash out and repay evil for evil. But Lord, to return the evil and persecution with kindness, with goodness. We thank you that you conquered us by becoming servant of all and dying in our place even when we perpetrated violence against you. God, we pray for that little church from which that boy came from, and we pray that they would be seeking you even more fervently at this time for healing. Oh God, be with this country. Have mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.